songs have been written about every imaginable topic, but the best ones usually, whether they be swooning 50s ballads or contemporary club bangers, as is the term nowadays, uh, they've been, most of them, are, the really good ones have been, have been, the topic has been the ups and downs of love, hasn't it? So whether musical fashions and fads come and go with every generation, love songs seem to stay uh, the, the kind of the constant throughout the charts. So you can go back to Burt Bacharach's What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love, The Righteous Brothers' Unchained Melody, The Beatles' She Loves You, Whitney Houston or Dolly Parton' I Will Always Love You, The Bee Gees' How Deep Is Your Love, Diana Ross' Lionel Richley Had an Endless Love, Huey Lewis in the News sang about the power of love, Brian Adams told us that everything he did, he did for us because he loved us. Beyonce and Jay-Z were crazy in love, and Calvin Harris and Rihanna, they found love in a hopeless place. All great love songs. Well, this morning, we turn to a one-verse wonder where we're going to meet a God who sings, and we're going to hear the greatest love song that has ever been sung. And it's an absolutely magnificent promise, almost too good to believe, and you will find it in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. I'll, I'll give you a moment. Uh, but if you don't know where Zephaniah is, if you hit Matthew and then you hit reverse and you go back four books, you will find Zephaniah. Much easier, I think, to find it on your app than in your physical Bible. Now, Zephaniah was one of the minor prophets. When, when, it, when we speak about minor prophets, that doesn't mean less important. That just means shorter. Okay, so... Uh, I'm a minor pastor because I'm just the shorter one. That's how you remember it. Prophet, he was. Prophet of judgment, he was. He foretold the day of the Lord, both the near day of judgment that was coming against Judah, but also a sort of a future day of judgment that was coming against the entire world. And against the backdrop of looming judgment, Zephaniah sings God's glorious song of future hope. And you'll find it in verse 17 of chapter 3. Hopefully everybody's there now. Let's read together. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness, and he will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. Let's read that again. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. May the Lord bless us this morning through his word. Well, you'll see this verse, like many of the verses that we've looked at over the last few weeks, it's, it's made up of two kind of independent clauses. There's two parts to it. Uh, and we're going to take two parts separately and we're going to explore them this morning because what they do in two parts is they point us to two things about God. They're going to point us to God's deliverance in the first half of the verse and then they're going to point us to God's delight in the second half of the verse. So let's begin with God's deliverance in the first half of the verse. In verse 17, the first half, Zephaniah announces that God is going to draw near to his people as a warrior to save them. And so the first question that immediately should spring to mind is, save us from what? What, he got, what is this warrior, God figure, who's going to come into the midst of the people, going to save the people from? And in order to answer that, you have to go back to the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. So, 
Here's what Zephaniah says. He says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. That's King Hezekiah, so he's a descendant of the king. In the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we discover that Zephaniah is prophesying during the early reign of a guy called King Josiah. That was about 640 B.C. to about the early 600 B.C., And you can read all about him in 2 Kings chapter 22. Now, he was eight years old when he ascended the throne, Josiah, and he was thrust to the head of the ungodly nation of the southern kingdom of Judah. So remember, if you you know your Old Testament perhaps a little bit, the kingdom was split and torn in two. There was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is often referred to then as Israel. The southern kingdom is often referred to as Judah. And Josiah was king of Judah, the southern kingdom, which incorporated the the tribe of Judah and Jerusalem. And he was uh, king because his evil, wicked father, Ammon, was assassinated. Now, the story goes that roughly about 80 years before Josiah became king, Israel, the northern kingdom, had been completely swept away by the Assyrians. They They had invaded them, and they had conquered them, and they had exiled them. And Judah watched on to what was happening, but failed to learn the lessons of the northern kingdom. And so they sank deeper and deeper into sin and rebellion against God and against his law. And so the opening two-thirds of the book of Zephaniah are pretty disturbing reading, because they are depressing as God declares his judgment on Judah. So read with me verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1. I will utterly sweep away Everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast, and I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked, and I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet also swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. God sounds pretty furious in those few verses. Why? Why was God, what caused God, who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34 as a God who is merciful and and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, what caused this God, such a God as that, to speak such swift and severe judgment against his people and also against the nations around them? Well, as you read on through Zephaniah, what you'll find is that he gives us three answers. The first one is pride. In verse 5, he tells us that they were worshipping false gods. In verses uh, 2 of chapter 3, he tells us that they were opposing God's word, that they were not listening to his voice, and they were accepting no correction, and they were not trusting the God or drawing near to him. So there was pride and there was self-sufficiency. They thought they knew better than God. But there was also complacency. In verse 12 of chapter 1, he tells us that they were complacent. That they were saying, oh, God, will do, he won't do this, he won't do that. Like somehow they were living as practical atheists, that God was unimportant, that he didn't matter. They were trivializing him and minimizing him. And they were putting off doing justice and, and holiness and living for God to another day because they believed their sin wasn't that serious and God wasn't serious about dealing with it. So there was pride and self-sufficiency and complacency, but also there was a self-reliance that had set in. 
This is in verse 13 and verse 18 of chapter 1. Judah had an obsession with the things of this world. They loved their fine homes. They wanted more wine. They wanted uh, extravagant wealth. And they thought that as they sought those kind of things, that they would feel protected and secure and satisfied. And so Judah was very much like we are in this day and age. They were confident, they were comfortable, but they were condemned because of their rebellion against sin. And they were under severe punishment at the hands of the most powerful person alive. And that wasn't Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that would invade in a few years' time. It was God that they were under the punishment of. For he had been personally offended by their sinful rebellion. And so in Zephaniah, you get two of the starkest warnings of God's judgment that you find in the Scriptures. Read with me chapter 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. And the sound of the Lord, sorry, and the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Even a mighty man cries aloud there. And then in 3, verse 8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and to pour out upon them my indignation and all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. It's pretty depressing reading, really. God is angry. God is angry at sin. And he tells us it's only a matter of time before sinners end up in a lot of trouble. And that's what happened to Judah. Judah was invaded by the Babylonians. They were conquered. The Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And the, and the Jews were carted off to exile in Babylon. And that historical period of the exile, which started in about 607 BC and ended with the destruction of the temple in 586, was a foretaste of a greater day, a more terrible day of the Lord's judgment that was coming upon all sinners. So while God watched the whole world sink into sin and soak themselves in sin, their their pride against him, their complacency despite him and their contentment without him, he had eyes and, and a heart that was towards a remnant, towards men and women that he had decided beforehand to save and to rescue quite apart from what they deserved. So you get this glimmer of hope in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Wedged in between these two judgment sections, Zephaniah calls God's people to repentance. It's a kind of, it's a small chink of light that breaks through in the darkness and in the blackness of God's judgment. And this is what Zephaniah says, God says. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. This is chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Before the decree takes effect. Before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord, on the day of the anger of the Lord. So Zephaniah holds out this promise of hope. He says, listen, there's judgment coming, but if you will humble your hearts and come to God in repentance, if you will seek righteousness, if you will take refuge in him, then perhaps he will be gracious to you and save you. 
and he will hide you under his wings, if you like, in the day of judgment. And so the words of judgment in Zephaniah prepare for words of grace that we find in the, in the second half of the verse that kind of starts in verse 9 of chapter 3. There's this amazing shift in Zephaniah. After the darkness and judgment of the opening two-thirds, the final third is an amazing shift. Because alongside this worldwide outpouring of wrath that God is going to bring, he also at the same time is going to undertake a mighty act of mercy. God is going after a people for himself, we're told in verse 9. People who will call on his name. And they're going to be people from all nations of the world. And he's going to take the initiative to save them, to change them, to rescue them, and to give them hearts and give them lips that will worship him and call upon his name. And he tells us, if you, we don't have time to read it, but from verse 9 onwards through to the end of verse 13, he's going to purge and he's going to purify this people. These people that he has chosen, this remnant, he's going to clear away their enemies. He's going to clear away the judgments against them. He's going to clear away all their guilt and their shame. He's going to clear away all of their fears. And he's going to make them a trophy of his grace. And he himself is going to do it by coming into the midst of his people as a mighty warrior to save them from the wrath and judgment that they deserve. Now think about how this fits into the whole story and scope of Scripture. Since the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, all humanity, and that includes you and me, we have been alienated from God because of our sins. And we struggle and we sin in the same ways that the, that the southern kingdom of Judah did. We sin with pride. We think we know better than God. We sin with self-sufficiency, that we don't need him. We worship idols. We are complacent. We think, ah, oh, my sin's not so serious, and God isn't really serious about dealing, it, dealing with it. We trivialize him. We minimize him. And then we live in self-reliance. We go after other things. We like our finer homes. We like more wine. We want more money. We want more sex. We enjoy worldliness. And judgment is coming. And yet, over and over and over throughout the Scriptures, we have this story about a God who seeks and saves the lost. A God who pursues sinners relentlessly and tirelessly to bring them back to himself no matter how far we have fallen away from him. And verse 17 now, our one verse wonder, is another example of a God as a mighty hero fighting for his people to save them from the judgment that he is bringing. Perhaps you've heard it said, it's, I've heard it said a few times, that the very thing that we need saving from is the very God who saves us. And that's Zephaniah's message in a nutshell. The very God that we need saving from is the very God that saves us. And that's what he promises here in verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save. And, and Zephaniah's prophecy comes to fruition and fulfillment in the angelic announcement in Matthew chapter 1 where the angel says, Emmanuel, God with us, God in your midst is coming. And you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And the good news of the gospel and this is good news. You can smile under your mask when you hear this. The good news of the gospel is that it transforms you. It forgives you. It cleanses you. People like you and me who once shook our fists in the face of God are now transformed into people who seek the face of God because of the mercy of our God and because of the God who fights for us. 
And so here's the implication then, verse 14, if you've got it in chapter 3, still open. For those who have received God's salvation by turning to the Lord and seeking refuge in Him, here's what we're to do. We're to sing aloud. O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, and He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear. You shall never again fear evil. For on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands not grow weak. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. We're to sing. We're to shout. We're to sing praises to God with all of our hearts. Because we are people who have experienced the ultimate twist of history. We who once hated God, who preferred money and sex and self, now live for Him and exalt Him and will dwell forever in His presence. For the one for whom we needed to be saved is the God who Himself has saved us. That's a sublime and surprising and wonderful end to our story. God delivers. And God's people sing because we're delivered by grace alone, through faith alone, ultimately in Jesus Christ alone. But if you notice in verse 17, we're not the only ones who are singing. God sings too. Because not only does he deliver, but he delights. And that's the second thing we see in this text, the second half of the verse. God delights. See, verse 17 holds out for us the amazing prospect that on that final day of the Lord, when he is pouring out judgment upon sinners, he's also at the same time, on, when he has rescued a people for himself, when all of the work of redemption and reconciliation is done and all of the people that he has called and chosen have been brought safely from all four corners of the world, God is going to break out in song. He's going to sit on his throne highly exalted, and he's going to look out on all of his redeemed people, all of his gathered people, all of the people that his son died to save, and he's going to look out on them, and he's going to take delight in us. Isn't that amazing? Now, I don't know what you think God thinks about you. I don't know whether you ever have those kind of thoughts. Ever lie on your bed in the middle of the night, or maybe it's not even in the middle of the night, but in the daytime, and you just think, I wonder what God really thinks about me. Anybody ever have those thoughts? Or is it just me? Sometimes we sit there and we think, I wonder what God thinks about me. What would he say to me? Is he happy with me? Is he happy with you? Or is he disappointed in you? What's that last day going to look like? Is he going to say, yeah, okay, you get into heaven with your backside on fire? Go on then. Or is he going to frown disapprovingly at you? Tut, 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 like, I was going to say like my grandma, but she's not here to defend herself. Um, you know. Is he going to sit there and go, oh, do you know what? I really wish I had saved Bob instead of Nathan. Is he going to regret his decision? Is he going to wish he'd changed his mind? Is he going to look out and is he going to say, well, you know what? As he sort of talks to the son and the spirit, you know, the father, and he sort of says, you know, well, we did the best with the hand that we were dealt, didn't we? You know, well, I guess they are what they are. Is that, is that what God thinks about us? 
Absolutely not. Look at verse 17 again, because this is what God thinks about us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Rejoice and gladness. These are emotions of joy and delight that are expressed. God delights in his people. More importantly, or more specifically, God delights in you. And not just a plural corporate you, you. He delights in you. He smiles over you. He's going to be exuberantly happy that you are in his presence. The Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. Remember the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 32. Here it is. Fear not, little flock, for see how the Father rolls his eyes and huffs. As he gives you the kingdom. Oh no, that's not what it says. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Secondly, he will, look at what it says in in verse 17, he continues, he will quiet you by his love. I get this image from reading that, that God is going to, come down to each and every single redeemed child of his and he's going to look us in the eye and he's going to tell us about the love that he has for us. It's deep. It's affectionate. It's abiding and it's heartfelt. I get this idea from reading this verse that he will quiet us by his love, that he's going to embrace us and sweep us up into his arms of love and he's going to quell all of our fears and he's going to overcome all of the propensity that we have to wander away from him because we're restless and because we want other things. And he's going to say to us, because of my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and because you've hidden yourself in him and you've trusted him, you now are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. He's going to quiet us by his love. But he hadn't finished yet. Go back to verse 17, the second half again. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who, do you remember that? The son goes away, spends all of his father's wealth, ends up eating with the pigs, such as he hits rock bottom, he comes back to the father. The father sees him a long way off, runs out to him, throws his arms around him, says, I'm going to throw a big party to welcome you back, put the best ring on his finger, give him the best robe, kill the fat calf, let's party like it's 1999. That's what God's going to do for us. He's going to exalt over you with loud singing. It's, it's an image of God throwing a divine celebration. He's going to hold a huge, loud party with music and rejoicing, and he himself is going to lead the singing. And those words exalt and loud are supposed to convey this sense of vigorous, exuberant, lavish expressions of God's delight in you and me. And these three expressions taken together remind me of a wedding. Verse 17. Everybody's been to a wedding, right? Yeah? 
So you think about weddings, right? You get at the beginning of the wedding, you get the, you're in the church, the groom is there, he's smiling from ear to ear like he's got like he's the cat that's got the cream. He is rejoicing, he's rejoicing with gladness. This is the day he's been waiting for. He can't believe he's going to get married to this girl who's going to come down the aisle in a few minutes. He is like the cat that's got the cream. He's rejoicing with gladness. And then the bride arrives. And the bride walks down the aisle and and I, I remember those days, you know, you stand there, you look down the aisle, and you make contact with your, with your bride's eyes, and she starts to come to you, and you just end up lost in wonder, and you're absorbed by the object of your love, and anything could be happening in the room, but you don't care, because you are being quieted by the love of your bride. And then you express your vows to one another, and the pastor says... I now pronounce you husband and wife. You can kiss the bride and everybody explodes in cheering and shouting and screaming and laughing and applause. And then everybody heads off for a big party where there's usually feasting and music and dancing and singing and laughter and joy and gladness. And it's loud and there's exuberance. That's what this is supposed to conjure up. Isaiah says it differently in or, or the same thing but differently in Isaiah 62 verse 5 where he says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. And these three expressions in verse 17 are drawn from pictures and analogies that are trying to express something of God's delight over his delivered people in ways that we as human beings can understand. But let me tell you, the reality of what we will experience on that day is going to be far, far greater than words can describe. But what Zephaniah is trying to do is trying to pile up the images to help us to see and understand the unrestrained intensity of God's passionate delight in his people. He will rejoice over us with gladness. He will quiet us by his love. He will exult over us with loud singing. God delights in his people. And John Piper says this. We must banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom as though Christ found the loophole in the law, did some fancy plea bargaining and then squeaked us by the judge. No way, he says. God himself, the judge, put forward Christ as our substitutionary sacrifice. And when we trusted him, God welcomes us with bells on. He loved that. Maybe we should all come dressed as Morris dancers to remind us that God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger. He kills the fattened calf. He throws a party. He shouts a shout that shakes the ends of creation. And he leads us in the festal dance. Oh, I wish I had words to communicate this. God's heart towards his people, God's heart towards you and me is large, really large. He rejoices over us. His love for us is the surest his joy in us is the fullest. His song over you is the loudest. It's dumbfounding, it's staggering, and it's true. And it's not just something that's going to happen on that day. This is what God feels about us today. Let that sink in for a moment. Yes, Zephaniah pictures what will what we will experience on that final day, but that is also a picture of how God feels about you now. 
Perhaps you don't feel that. Perhaps you don't feel that this morning because you feel guilty because of your sin. Perhaps you sit there and you think, yeah, but if you knew me and what I think about and what I've done and the, th- the thoughts and the actions and the deeds and the words, you know, God would not rejoice over me. Well, he- let me tell you what he would say in answer to that. Verse 15 of chapter 3. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. If you're in Christ, he's taken away the judgments against you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because there is no condemnation, that condemnation actually has been replaced by this. By what? He'll rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He'll exalt over you with loud singing. Perhaps you feel that you can't accept this because... You're being oppressed. You've got enemies and opposition and things that are situations and circumstances of your life that are really difficult. And you think, I look at them and I think, nah, God doesn't feel that way towards me. Otherwise, why would he put me in this situation? Well, here's how he would respond to you in that. Verse 15. He's cleared away all your enemies. He's a warrior, a mighty one who will save. Verse 17. And verse 19, I'll deal with all of your oppressors. And I'll save the lame and the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise. God says, no, no, no. What I feel about you is this. I rejoice over you with gladness. I quiet you with my love. I exult over you with loud singing. Perhaps you can't accept it because you just feel so distant from God. You feel like there's something between us and I just can't get around it. Me and God, we used to be cool, but now we're distant. Here's how he would respond to you in this. Verse 15. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. He's not far away. He's not distant. He's near. And he draws near to say this. I rejoice over you with gladness. I quiet you with my love. I exult over you with singing. We should this morning feel the wonder and the reality and the glory of verse 17. This is the greatest love song. And it might be encapsulated in this little song. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to just mention something to you right now. That there is one obstacle to experiencing this. Just one obstacle. You've got to do what Zephaniah calls you to do in chapter 2. You've got to repent. You've got to humble yourself and seek refuge in the Lord. For when we take refuge in the Lord, when we seek his deliverance, we will experience his delight. The two are connected. You can't have one without the other. You can't have God's delight without him first delivering you. And if you've been delivered, you get the second part for free. 
You can't divorce them. You can't separate them. Deliverance and delight go together. In order for us to experience the delight, we must experience first his deliverance. And to do that, we must put aside all pride. We must put aside all boasting in ourselves. We must take refuge in God and bank all of our hope on Jesus. And when we do that, may we hear the glorious truth of this one verse wonder that reveals the heart of God towards us. And may all of our hearts be awakened to the wonder that God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he rejoices over us with gladness, he quiets us by his love, and he exalts over us with loud singing. Let's pray.